So we come to our 38th class in Romans today, and it is our last one and as our study, because we are going to be going through Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> now, if you look at your handout, you see a very long three-page document of the text. Um, it actually wouldn't take three pages if I didn't format it the way I did. But I broke it down so you can actually see the various greetings and uh, details that Paul put together in this letter. Believe it or not, well, maybe you can believe it, this is a favorite chapter of Romans to skip. I mean, you just don't find an awful lot of exposition on this particular passage. You know, there are faithful expository preachers that are preaching through the Bible and they will go through it, of course. But there's, when you're coming to reading this on your own in your devotional study, it's like coming to numbers. And this litany of names that you can't pronounce, you don't know who they are. Um, some of them are completely unique to Romans and are never repeated anywhere else in the New Testament. And you just kind of go, okay, that's nice for you guys, but it's irrelevant to me. Well, what's our motto? when it comes to scripture, it's here for a reason. There's something here for us today. The first thing that I'm gonna have you do is you need to look at your handout carefully because I'm gonna pop through 11 different spots in the text and I want you to circle the words in the Lord or in Christ. So look at verse two you will find in the Lord. Verse three, you'll find in Christ. Verse seven, in Christ. Verse eight, in the Lord. Verse nine, in Christ. Verse 10, in Christ. Verse 11, in the Lord. Verse 12, twice, in the Lord and in the Lord. Verse 13, in the Lord. And then jump all the way over to verse 22, and you have in the Lord again. You kind of think that's important? he repeats it 11 times in his letter, he's making a statement that everybody he's talking about are part of the family of God and they all share one Lord and one Christ. There's all the diversity of these group of people, but they have one common denominator, just like we have in this room and in this church body. If you take nothing else away from this chapter, take away this principle. We are one in Christ. We are unified in the Lord. In this particular passage, there are 33 names, 33 people named, and 26, 26 of them are greeted. 
the makeup of these people, and I'm, this is just an overview before we actually dig into some of the details, but it's a mixture of friends, co-workers, and people known by reputation, maybe not known in, by, in, by person by Paul. And the diversity of this group, the names, a number of them are slave names. A very large, in fact, primarily the most names here are typical slave names. Names given either to slaves or to slaves who are now free, freedmen. There are eight women named and 18 men. The majority of names here are Gentiles, but there is a clear co collection of Jewish believers that are identified as such. There are also people associated with prominent families. Uh, you'll see them named when we get to them, but it's Aristobulus and Narcissus. And those are influential known families in Rome. Another little background here. Uh, scholars generally agree that Paul identifies five house churches in this passage. Now, it, they're not necessarily specifically named as such, but it indicates that there are possibly five different groups that meet in homes and this letter is being presented to them. That would be in verse 5, where you see Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 10, where you have the house of Aristobulus. Verse 11, the house of Narcissus. Verse 14, Syncretus and his brothers and sisters. And then verse 15, Philogus and all the saints with him. Now, again, we're taking an idea and overlaying it on the text because you don't have Paul saying, and greet the folks in the house church of. He's not saying that, but it's implied. Because remember, there wasn't a St. Peter's Basilica in Rome yet. There was not big cathedrals. They met in homes, or they would start, as Paul would always do, they would start in the synagogue, realize that not everybody's going to be in agreement, and so they end up in a home church. Obviously, there's more than five home churches in Rome. The city had a million people in it. So, I mean, take, uh, let's just take Chandler, Mesa, and Tempe, in part of South Phoenix, gather together and stick it in Rome. I think there's more than five churches in Chandler, Mesa, Tempe, and South Phoenix. Just a guess, but I would imagine there's more than five. There could be as many as a hundred in Phoenix, but in this area there might have been 20, 30, 40. We don't know, we can only guess. But we do know that it's a vibrant community. The other thing you notice here before we dive in is the love that Paul has for these people is evident. 
He calls them by name. Now, just kind of a guess. If during the uh, main service, either first or second service, if Pastor Jim were to call you by name from the pulpit, your eye, you, you know, you would, oh yeah, that's me. Why is he calling on me? Oh, great, I have to pray. No, <laughs> but seriously, he knows you by name and he calls you out. That There's something significant to that. So don't forget that. He's specifically talking about special people in the Church of Rome or, and people he knows. Secondly, note the diversity, which I've mentioned. The extreme difference in backgrounds. Everything from wealthy to slaves. From Gentiles to Jews. It is really quite an incredible picture of the early church. And then lastly, that this church is vibrant. They're, they're really working at this. And yes, Paul has had said some strident things in Romans. Well, when does he not speak with authority and instruction and exhortation? But even in chapter 15, he said, I'm not doing this because I'm being mean. I'm doing this because I love you and I want to make sure you understand the faith. But you wouldn't be talking at this theological level with people who did not understand it or at least have some foundation into which it would take them to another level. Well, let's start looking at the text itself. That's my preamble. Oh, and happy Mother's Day. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. Without looking at your study Bible notes at the bottom of the page, anybody know where Sancrea is? Oh, come on. You know this off the top of your head. No, you don't. Uh, I had to look it up. Sancrea is the port city of Corinth, seven miles to the east. So when we studied Corinth and we did the whole background, you have this very, you know, vibrant city called Corinth but it didn't have a port the land didn't didn't work that way the port city was a few miles away and if you well let's do a little erasing and drawing here I don't see an eraser right here there's a bunch in there it's on this one they put all of them in one okay with a shoehorn. Yeah, they really shoehorn them in here. Oh my goodness. Uh, okay. They don't want me to erase anything. Um, okay. Just to draw it up, just for the sake of this conversation. Uh, this is going to be really bad. But anyway, you've got basically Greece 
Athens is over here, okay, so that's Athens. Corinth is down here, and Sancria is right on this spot. And notice that the land is very short distance here. There's a port up here as well, on the north end. Folks from Rome or whatever would drive their boat here, they'd unload the boat, put them on trucks, put them on wagons, drive them across the isthmus, unload them here, and then on the way. So they decided to build a canal. Nero was the first one to start building it. It was not finished for 1,500 years. Seriously. But you can go and visit that now, and you can see the canal. The problem is they built it for boats that were built a long time ago. Very narrow. So you see this really sharp cliff kind of dug into the, the, the ground. And they have the problem that these big massive ships that are pulling cargo can't make it across the canal. They still have to go around even today. Same problem in the Pan Panama Canal was built. Because remember, if you've ever been down there, or you heard the story, for the Panama Canal, they built boats called Panmax boats that were the same width. Every boat is built to have a six inch margin on each side of the canal to go through the locks. Panmax. So the problem is, the consumers want to send more stuff on the boats, so they build them higher. That didn't help because then, when they were on the open seas, they go, you know, fall over. So they built a new canal next to the Panama Canal that's much wider to handle the super max boats. Aren't you? So, when did they do that? Uh, the last uh, 10, 15 years. Oh, really? Yeah. Because oh, I had friends go through the new one. The last yeah. time I went through, when I was on a tour, we went through the Panama Canal on a little excursion, wow. and they were pointing where the big one was going to be built, and that was about 15 years ago, but it's been built now. And Panama got the shipbuilders to pay for it. Because the shipbuilders are going, if if we can add 30% more per cargo, we can make 30% more profit and not have to go all the way under South America to get to the other side. Anyway, aren't you just full of trivia now? You can go wow your friends, be the life of a party. <laughs> anyway, Phoebe is from here at St. Croix. Well, and last week you were talking about Elysium right. being in Turkey. Right. Well, this missionary and his family that visited a year or so ago, when I got a letter from them recently, and I'm looking at the, at the name of their mission group and where you contribute is Felicium. Oh, <laughs> how funny. Alaricum. Alaricum. Yeah, it's actually in the, the, the Albania-Serbia area. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Okay, so now that we know where Phoebe's from, let's look at who is Phoebe. So wait a minute, this is a woman. This is first century Roman Empire. We know full well that, you know, in certain cultures, women were not considered uh, leadership positions or responsibility. 
even in Jewish communities, it would be you couldn't even use a woman's testimony in a legal proceeding. It would not be considered worthy, which is why in the gospel stories of having Mary and the other women in the tomb was so amazing that the gospel record shows something that in that culture would not have been considered valid. If they were trying to fake it, it would have been Peter and John that found the empty tomb. Because they would have composed it that way so that no one could have assailed their testimony. Instead, here's the very people that, uh, wow, then it must have really happened. Um, so anyway, he says, I commend. Now in that era, there were people who would, let's just say, send spam letters uh, under fraudulent flag, basically saying, hi, I'm, a, I'm Paul, and here's what I'm telling you to do, you know, buy Enron stock. And they're what? Who's this guy? And it, there was no connectivity because they weren't sure that this person was legit. So letters of commendation would come along with a person who was not known to the recipient. So Paul is commending our sister, not my sister, our sister Phoebe, and the ESV has a servant of the church. I'll get back to, this, that, uh, to a sec for the second, in a second here. So Phoebe is the person carrying the letter for Paul to Rome. He gives this extraordinary book, this letter, this epistle, to Phoebe to carry it. This is a significant role, significant responsibility. There have been, and I read a lot of the, uh, let's just say, theories. So did she just take it to one church and drop it off and then go to her hotel? Or did she carry it to each one of these house churches? And then secondly, was she the one who read it out loud in the, in the, in the room? Or, probably not, but there's these kinds of questions come up. Okay, what did she do? She must have been someone significant. Well, of course she was. It says down here, welcome her in the way the Lord Welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Help her whatever she may need from you. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. We have to be careful of that word patron. This is a translation in the ESV. The Greek word is, is P-R-O-S-T-A-T-I-S. Prostatis. And it's the only time found in the entire New Testament. So we're not exactly sure what it means. It is a um, noun that's based on a verb, which we do have uses of the verb form, which means to care for or to give aid or to preside over. The thought here is that she was a woman of means. The fact that she could support others and support Paul 
monetarily or maybe this is where Paul was staying when he was in Corinth and she was the woman of means who was then part of the church and entrusted and had the ability to pay for the trip to Rome to get there and obviously she didn't go by herself it was probably part of a larger group that you're in a caravan otherwise you're on a rather precarious journey and did she go by boat did she go overland we don't know but she ended up in Rome yeah if I mention something just on Please. that point, yeah. uh, in the Amplified version, the Amplified Classic Edition, it, it says there's a parenthesis after helper, many gloom itself, uh, uh, parenthesis, shielding us from suffering, close parenthesis, interesting, very interesting twist, shielding us from suffering, which, you know, knowing how Paul was exposed to the elements and, yeah. you know, I just wonder if that, what I, that, I, what, I, uh, I would say that they're stretching the meaning of the word, of the verb. Because the verb form itself has care for, give aid, or preside over. Mm -hmm. Shielding from suffering could be implicit in that, but not explicit in mm -hmm. typical usage. It's, it's this is why strong. you use multiple translations, by the way, and we're going to run into a lot of that in this passage. Aren't you excited? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so she's a woman of means. But the can of worms word <laughs> in this verse is the word servant in the ESV. That's the Greek word diakonos, deacon. It is translated as servant in the King James, the New American Standard, and in the ESV and the CSB. It is translated deacon in the NIV, the NRSV, and the NLT. NLT. Deaconess. Not in the NIV, it's not. What is it in the RSV? Deaconess. Deaconess, okay. Either deacon or servant or deaconess is actually true to the Greek word. Because diakonos can be is translated as servant. It's also translated as deacon. Now, just to clarify, it's not always used in the word for the office of deacon. It's sometimes used as the work or the, what a servant or a person who is working in the church will do. For example, First uh, Peter, this is why we have to always be so careful when folks will use proof text to back up a, the, a, a particular interpretation of scripture. They will point to this verse and will see, she was a pastor of the church. And I've read that. And you want to go, that isn't what it says. Um, but you go to, over to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. It says... As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. It's the same Greek word, diakonos, to serve or to deacon each other. So it's used differently. And yeah, that's a verb form, I understand. But there are other places, and in fact, Pastor Tim, or past, not Pastor Tim, Pastor Jim, um, 
in his passage today in 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, which he didn't get to, which he's getting to next week, which I thought was interesting. Here we are. We were one week away from, you know, getting, you know, dueling messages again. But verse 8 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued. And he goes into the qualifications of deacons. It's the same word, diakonos. That is the office of it. It was a couple centuries later that the word deaconess was, be, was started to be used. In the earliest renderings, it is deacons, and then later, deaconess began being used in the church to identify the women of the church who were servants and working in the church in some capacity. All right, so she's an amazing lady. There's no question. I would like to know more about her. I would like to know what she, what she looked like. How did she talk? What was her relationship to people? The fact that Paul would entrust this letter to her, to take it to a, a group of people that he's not visited before? You know, you wonder, maybe she knew the next person, people that are being uh, greeted here. Maybe because of Corinth and Ephesus, maybe she knew Priscilla and Aquila. And so when she's taking it up, Priscilla and Aquila go, hey, Phoebe, how you doing? It's so good to see you. Welcome into our home. This is our church body, blah, 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 blah. Who knows? But you have verse 3. Notice how the ESV has the name spelled, Greet Prisca, which has confused the heck out of people. Uh, Prisca is a diminutive form of the word Priscilla. So it's the same name. Uh, it's not like uh, Steve and Stephen, but you get the idea. You take a longer name, be Philip or Phil. You have the same name, but there's a diminutive form of it. Priscilla and Aquila, we know them from Acts chapter 18. They were originally from Rome. They were kicked out by Emperor Claudius because they were Jewish and sent on their way, and so they relocated, connected with Paul, traveled with Paul to Ephesus, were very influential in Ephesus. Um, they taught Apollos. When you had that issue of who is this Apollos fellow, he's being trained and discipled by Priscilla and Aquila, and there's a uh, a very strong theory that Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews because he was a prominent Jewish believer. But it says here, Greek, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their necks for my life. Mm -hmm. And you want to go, when did that happen? We don't have the story. We know there was a riot in Ephesus, but Priscilla and Aquila are not mentioned in the quote-unquote saving of Paul's life in that incident, but maybe they were involved in that. There may have been other riots. Um, it was interesting because when I thought, started thinking of riots and whatnot, I'm just sorry, I'm, you know, our last three years of America, um, we've seen riots. We see what they look like. Now maybe they are not 
as overtly violent as that, but when you have a mob of 50 people who are coming after somebody and you try to get away, it's ugly and it's frightening. Um, there was a video this weekend I saw of in the streets of Philadelphia, a group of teenage boys thought it would just be fun to jump on the traffic, on the cars in traffic. They run out into the street, make the person stop, and then they would all run and start jumping up and down in the car. Think it's hilarious. That's frightening if you're in that car. And you just wait for someone to run over someone, and then the driver's the one that gets arrested. Anyway, let's not go there. Just the picture that Priscilla and Aquila risk their lives and you know not only do I give them thanks but to all the church of the Gentile gives thanks as well in other words their influence was very widespread everyone knew who they were they have moved back to Rome and are probably very strong leaders in that, that time and then it says verse 5 greet also the the church in their house so obviously, people were meeting in their house. Then it says, greet my beloved, uh, you can pronounce it if you'd like, uh, Epinetus, something like that, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Huh. Some translations have it as the first fruits, because that's the literal meaning of the Greek there, first fruits. Boy, there's got to be a great story there. Who is this guy? How come we've never heard of him before? This is the first time you hear of him and the last time you hear of him. Only in this verse. But it is also an echo of 1 Corinthians 16.15 where Paul sends greetings to Stephanus who was the first fruits of Achaia. So he has identified the earliest believers in a community before. He did it in 1 Corinthians. He's doing it now in Rome. We don't know when or what the circumstances were. It also says first fruit or first convert in Asia. Well, that's a pretty big area. That's basically from Turkey all the way over. That's a very broad uh, place. It may be he was in Galatia. It may, may, maybe he was in Macedonia. We don't know. We, also, we know he's not in Achaia because Stephanus is the first one in Achaia. And Achaia is this part of Greece, the southern part. Someone was wondering if this is the first person that Paul personally led to Christ in the area. We don't know. It doesn't say. <coughs> Then it says, verse 6, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Oh, we have no idea who this Mary is. There's a lot of Marys in, in the Bible. A lot of them. Common, common name. Um, you could probably guess this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. So let's not add that to this um, mix. But here's the point. 
Paul expects the people in Rome know about her work. He wouldn't have phrased it this way otherwise. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. And they would go, oh yeah, well, she did this. And they would, the people would know what Mary had done. He just doesn't lay it out for us. <clears throat> so I, I think of the application. So when you work and do um, good things and you work for the church and you work for others in the body, do you expect recognition? Do you expect a plaque? Do you want to, you know, cross the stage and everybody applaud you for your work for Christ? I hope not. The fact that he calls her out is recognition of her hard work. And that alone is a massive blessing. And we would, but here we are 2,000 years later, we're kind of going, I wonder what she did. But they knew what it was. He did not have to identify it. And I love that about it. He didn't say, greet Mary who has cooked 7,500 meals for you. Does, doesn't get that specific. It just, he, she worked hard for you. Hmm. Interesting. Verse 7. And this is the can of worms of all can of worms verses. And we're going to have fun um, fun with this a little bit and you might go well why is it a can of worms let's just read it and then we'll figure that out greet Andronicus and Junia my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners they are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me so we go to the last part of the verse they were in Christ before me in other words they were believers in Christ before 33-34 AD before Paul was converted. That's significant. It says, greet Andronicus and Junia. Well, and it says, my kinsmen. My kinsmen means they're Jewish. Right? So there's our Jewish believers in this thing. And my fellow prisoners. We don't know which occasion that they were in jail with Paul, but obviously at some point that happened. That they were imprisoned. I mean, it's the same term used in Colossians 4 and in Philemon about being imprisoned. It's not a euphemism. So at some point, something came up, and these fellow Jewish believers were in prison with him. So now we have the problem is, who are Andronicus and Junia? Well, depending on your Bible translation, Junia is either a man or a woman. Yeah, and boy has this verse been scrutinized and whatnot, because, well, I'll just show you. Um, this is where we're going to have a Greek lesson, so gird your loins. <laughs> this is how you spell Junia in Greek. J, the, the J-O-I, 
These are ends. These are ends in Greek. Those are oh, ends. Okay. Hmm? You, the rest of it looks like it's the. You. you I know it's not perfect. No, I'm saying you, you probably don't want to transliterate the. the you've got the new as the Greek new. You probably should just put it as an end so people understand. It looks put like a what? Put put the new as an end, actual N in in R alphabet. Oh, okay. You're right. Like a B or this R, is the Greek letter so N. Oh, let's just do it this way. We'll transliterate for those of us who are English speakers. Okay. Union. Unia. Right. Now, this name is feminine or masculine depending on the accent you put on the word. <coughs> right? So, if you want it to be male, that makes it male. Union. If you want it to be female, you put the accent over the I. Different accent. Problem is, in original Greek, there's no accents at all. Accents were added later to help distinguish words. So when you come to the earliest manuscripts, you don't see it with one way or the other. So how do you know? This is a problem because of another part of this passage. Well, I'm, I'm not, before I get to that, all right? So, you either have unius, which is male, or unia, which is female. Unius is used in the NIV 1984 edition, the RSV, the NASV, and the TEV, which is the good news for modern men. Unia, the female version of this, is used in the ESV, the King James Version, believe it or not, the NRSV, and the NIV 2011 edition. Notice how the NIV changed from male to female in less than 20 years. <sighs> Why is this important? Well, you have the issue of the second part of this verse where it the ESV translates it as they are well known to the apostles. Okay, that's fine. And that the, the Greek can allow for that. But other translates it, translations render it as outstanding among the apostles. So write that in your passage there. Outstanding among the apostles. Which suggests that Andronicus and Unia are apostles. So are they big A apostles or little a apostles? A, A, A. And, and he's alligator. A, A, A. Sorry. No, no Dr. Seuss, but anyway. Um, big A apostles are the 12 apostles 
and Paul, those who have physically seen Jesus and have been called to that office, right? Paul calls himself a big A apostle. Little a apostles are usually described as those who are delegates sent out by the church. You will find Titus called a little a apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You will find Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2 called an apostle with a little a. So you end up with the challenge for those who are trying to discern the role of women in the church. Was Junia male or female? If she's female and she was this important apostle person, that means a female held a major role. And so did Phoebe. You see the problem. You run into this, and I mean the arguments, oh my goodness sake, the arguments that happen among churches on the role of women in the church and the offices that they can hold or not hold, it, this is one of the verses that gets bannered around and plopped into the argument. The problem is, and I, you know, and I, I don't want to overstate this, but it makes me wonder if this verse is not one that can carry the weight of the argument either way. It's not intended to define the role of women in the church. That's not what Paul's doing. He's saying, love on these people. He's not saying, oh, by the way, she's really special. You know, she's got a title and she's got all of this. That's not what he's saying. You're reading that into this. Is she and Adronicus important? Absolutely. I tend to believe that it, it is Junia. This is a woman and this is a married couple. That's how I believe it. We might disagree. We can have our argument when we go out in the car on the way home. But because I'm driving, I can leave her on the side of the road. <laughs> Make her walk, which she would like to do. She would love to walk home. Anyway, medieval scribes used Junius. Um, they actually changed the original, um, partly because of the challenges. And it, it worked its way into the early Nestleland texts and actually worked into the earliest issues, for those of you who understand what this means, the Bauerart Gingrich uh, Greek lexicon, which caused a lot of uh, problems. In Latin, it is spelled Junia, not Junius. And there are over 250 inscriptions in Rome without the S, not a single one with the S. So it's a common enough name that to have it as Junius with the S does not fit the evidence archeologically. Almost all 
scholars, both super conservative and otherwise, are now leaning toward this as a female name. But Lisa's one that could show the argument if they were in prison, how can a woman be in prison with them? Anyway. What about, well, they also there's the kinsmen, the word kinsmen, is there any indication of, uh, of uh, what gender kinsmen no. is? No, it's just a term, term meaning. Term, it's not. Yeah, it's, not. it's basically a relative, you know, we're, we're a part of the family. Yeah, because there's no feminine form of that word. And it wouldn't make sense when you have both genders in the word. They would default to the male designation in the, con in the, in the conversation. So even in our own little room here, we opened our can of worms. But you see how challenging this can become? Because if, if, and the translations are not agreeing, even among our conservative brothers and sisters in the church, we have warring translations of this word. And boy, I mean, I, I basically went down a rabbit hole that lasted about an hour and a half trying to figure this out, and, you know, reading bunches of different opinions. Um, but over the last 100 years of scholarship, prior to that, it was almost all male. But in the last 100 years, as they've been looking at the Greek text and its usage, they feel like this is a married couple. Uh, they say here, this with the extra N is the accusative singular form of the word unius. That's where it comes yeah. from. Yeah. Whatever that means, grammatically. You know, you know go talk amongst yourselves if you care. Uh, <laughs> all right. Verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. All we know about that is that Ampliatus is a common slave name. We don't know anything else about it, but that name is a common slave name. Then it says, greet Ur Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and our beloved Stachys. Those are, again, two common slave names. Then it says, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. The Greek word on behind the word approved is to be tested. So there's something that happened to this fella that tested his faith and he came out strong on the other side and is being acknowledged by Paul for that. Then we get to greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Aristobulus is the grandson of Herod the Great. He is the brother of Herod Agrippa. So he would be Herod Aristobulus. Aristobulus. Now Herod Agrippa ruled Palestine and died in, uh, well, right around this time. So a little bit after Aristobulus, we have Herod Agrippa's death recorded in Acts chapter 12. But his brother, the one mentioned here, 
was carried to Rome with his brother Agrippa as a hostage. There was some sort of political upheaval, etc., and uh, they were arrested, and Aristobulus was taken to Rome where he died in 48 AD. He was, he was murdered, or...? Uh, it said he was... Where is it here? It just says that he died. Um, and we know this because it's written about in Josephus. It's found in Josephus' Antiquities, section 18. If you would like to really read it, yeah, it's a great cure for insomnia. Um, so, but here's a thought. If he was from a prominent family, he probably had an entire retinue that traveled with him. It wasn't just him, so his servants, his family, maybe his wife, maybe his kids, who know, they all went to Rome, and that home, they may be established, their home in Rome. So this is theoretical, we don't know. Did you think that he died in 48 AD? Agrippa died in 48 oh, AD. Okay, Aristobulus died later. Okay, yeah. Was yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Aristobulus died later. But he died before the letter of Ro to Romans was written. But the family is still there. And the home or the household is still there. And there may be those within that who have converted. And they would be from the family of Herod. If that's who this is because we don't know for sure, but it kind of makes sense and it fits pieces of history. Then we have, greet my kinsmen. There's the word again, Hebrew. But the name, Herodian. Huh. Didn't we just have a Herod over here in Aristobulus? Herodian. We don't know if this is actually his name or a people group because there is... There were freedmen who were former Herodian slaves. And there is archaeological evidence in Rome of the synagogue of the Herodians. Which suggests that a group of Herodian or Herod slaves were living in Rome, became freedmen, and established a synagogue. And they were Jewish? Yes. Isn't that interesting? Then it says, Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narciss Narcissus. These are the selfie people. <laughs> those who are on TikTok. Uh, no. Actually, there is the goddess. You know the story of the goddess Nar Narcissus who sees her image in the pond and falls in love with it and just never can look away and dies of starvation and thirst. And that's the whole story. It's a male. Man, whatever. But whatever, it's the myth of that. And that's where we get our narcissists from. Well, this name in this passage is the name of a well-known freedman who was a former slave, had been freed, and he became the secretary of Emperor Claudius. 
He was forced into suicide. Narcissus was forced into suicide right after Nero ascended to the throne as emperor. And I don't know if you remember, remember your Roman history, but so Claudius was the emperor. His wife killed her husband so that her son, Nero, could take the throne at the age of 17 when he was old enough to rule. And so, you know, if you were part of the cabinet or part of the employee of the former emperor, you're probably not going to have a job, and they made sure of it by killing him. And he was Claudius's? He was Claudius's secretary. But the family, obviously, were converts, and the family was still prominent enough to be known as the family of him approximately five or six years later when this letter was written. Isn't that interesting? So, you know, by the time we're done with this class, you're going to win Trivial Pursuit in your Bible Trivia Club uh, games. So now we have in um, the next verses, verse 12, greet these workers in the Lord, Trophinia and Trifosa. Just the nature of their name makes them sound like sisters. Mm. These are both female names, but the way they start makes you wonder. And then greet the beloved per Persis, which is also a female name. All have worked hard in the Lord. But one, one commentator noted that the verb for Persis is past tense. And suggesting and then their extrapolation that maybe she was older and that she was no longer able to work as much as she had, but she was known for the work she had done at that point. Who knows? We don't know who they are. Then verse 13, Pastor Jim stole it from me this morning in, his, in the greeting time. What verse did he quote? As it says in Romans 16, mm -hmm. greet Rufus, chosen Lord, also his mother. And I went, doggone it. Last week, we're teaching Romans 15, and he used Romans 15 about the word welcome. And then I'm going, but that's in my notes. I mean, I seriously have it right here. Greet Rufus, cho chosen Lord, also his mother. Also his mother is in a bracket with the point to my notes on the side. It's Mother's Day. He's got your office code. He has. I am gonna be, I'm going to take one of those little things and search to see if there's a signal that goes out or they're hidden cameras or something. Anyway, don't you find that fun? I, I just turned to Lisa and went, can you believe it, two weeks ago? Next week, if he uses a passage from Acts 20 in the welcome time, I know there's something up. Because there's nothing in there that talks about welcoming others. Anyway, well, maybe there is. Who knows? I should probably email him. <laughs> Let's play a joke on our class. <laughs> anyway. But it is interesting, he mentions Rufus. There is a Rufus in the New Testament. Simon of Cyrene's son. Yep, Simon of Cyrene's son. Mark 15, verse 21. It says, talks about Simon of Cyrene who's carrying the cross for Jesus mm -hmm. and his sons Alexander and Rufus. 
And here we are, 20 some odd years later, and he is saying, greet Rufus, chosen of the Lord and also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Uh, again, something really special is here. Is it the same Rufus? We don't know. But when you have the only other place that a name like that, it's an unusual name, is mentioned, it makes you wonder if there has been a connectivity over time between these families. Then you have a group, we have no idea who these people are. The Syncretists, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, doesn't name the sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Now, the one name that there is some possible connection, this is from William Barclay's commentary, is in verse 15, the Nereus, N-E-R-E-U-S. I'll just quote from William Barclay. Nereus may have been instrumental in the salvation of two famous Romans. In 95 AD, Rome was shocked when two distinguished Roman citizens were condemned for being Christian believers. Flavius Clemens and his wife Domitilia. She was the granddaughter of Vespasian, the former emperor, and a niece of Domitian, the reigning emperor. Flavius was executed and his wife was banished to an island. Both Flavius, I mean Flavius and his wife had a household servant named Nereus. Nereus was a common name, but if the household servant of Flavius was the same man Paul referred to, could it be that he was instrumental in those two people coming to the Lord and being then condemned and executed and banished by their relative, Maybe who was the emperor? That movie, The Road, was based on. Isn't that kind? I don't know. Then it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, Carl, smoochy, smoochy. <laughs> I actually have that in my notes. If Carl's there, smoochy, smoochy. <laughs> that isn't what it means necessarily, but we do know that in some cultures, the bussing of the cheeks is normal. Even the kissing on the lips is normal. The Jews kiss. The Jewish? Judas kiss. The Judas. The famous Judas. Oh, of course, the Judas kiss, of course. Um, in Japan, what is the greeting? It's a bow. And because I went to high school in Hawaii, I still remember being on the bus, the city bus. And we had to stop. And there were two elderly Japanese ladies waiting to get on. And they both walk up to the door and they bow. And they were doing this. Back and forth. They were trying to tell the other, go ahead. But they were doing it by bowing. And by the time the other person comes up, they see the other one's down. And you basically have to come up at the same time. And then you can move forward. And they were just, the bus driver goes, get on with it. <laughs> it was, 
hilarious because they were going. They were never going to end, and it was just uh, must have been a dozen times. It was back and forth, and we're all kind of. I'm watching this going. That's interesting. I've never quite seen that because normally the peripheral vision you can kind of time it to come up, but there's no touching. I mean that no. But you go in other cultures, and there's a lot of physical expression. Um, anyway, obviously, the idea of the holy kiss is mentioned other places in Paul's letters. It's 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter 5, so it's even in Peter's writings. It's not an unusual thing to recommend that you have that type of physical fellowship and recognition of each other and love for each other. So that's our fun little, you know, recitation of all these people. But I look at these next verses and you know, you go from verse 17 to 20 and Paul steps back and he says, and by the way, watch out for false teachers. Hasn't he already said this? Hasn't he already indicated this? But it's as if right in the middle of the greetings, he said, and by the way, in case you didn't pick up earlier, be really careful of false teachers. And this is a passage that we all should read carefully and then also add to it, because we're actually going to be looking at this next week. But it's Acts 20, verse 29 and 30, where Luke writes, I know that after my departure, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, and Luke is writing it. I know that after my departure, departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Paul never stops warning. You've got, I'm just going to rattle these off, so if you want to know which, where they are later, you can either listen to the tape or ask me after. I've got my notes here. 1 Corinthians 5. Philippians 3, Colossians 2, 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 3, Titus 3, and in Jude as well. There's warnings about false teachers. And I have this in my notes. Question what I teach, for goodness sake. You've trusted me with authority to teach or to extrapolate. What if I'm wrong? Just say it. I'm fallible. I do my best to bring to you the truth and the understanding from many others who have come before. But just because I stand here does not mean I'm right. Just because Pastor Jim is given that position doesn't mean He's infallible. Be very careful when you have those, especially in the spiritual life, are expounding truth, and you, you might say, well, that was off. What was, 
And then you have to go, but what was it I didn't like? I don't know. I don't know enough to what I don't know, and so now I'm confused. Then you start digging into it. Heresy will never bludgeon you into error. It will seduce you. Bit by bit, piece by piece. So if you're on the straight and narrow, all it takes is one degree. And within 10 miles, you're so off course, you don't know where you are anymore. Be very careful when it comes to your spiritual life and your understanding of Scripture. It says right there at the end of verse 17, avoid these kind of people. Don't turn on your TV or trust Mr. Google. You have a theological question, you type it into Google, probably the first one isn't the one you want to read. It might be, but read that one. And then read page 17 in the search engine. Work your way through it because it's a robot that's giving you the answers based on algorithms and search engine optimization. And search engine optimization does not have the word truth in it. I, am I making my point? <laughs> we have become so reliant on our technology, we don't even think about it anymore. Oh, I'll just look it up on Wikipedia, because we can trust that. Yeah, I don't think so. You notice verse 8, it says, The smooth talk and the flattery deceives the heart of the naive. Don't be naive. He says, be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Even though it's been forever since Genesis 3.15, where it says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. That promise is going to come in fulfillment. And in many ways it has, but in many ways it hasn't. Then he has a few other greetings to Timothy, who we know. Lucius, we're not sure who it is. It might be the same one that's in Acts 13, who was a teacher with Barnabas in Antioch. And Jason, Jason might be the Jason of Acts 17, uh, who is from Thessalonica. And Sosipater, a uh, other way to spell that name is S-O-P-A-T-E-R, Sopater, and we find that name in Acts 20. So it's possible that these kinsmen, these Jewish people, are the ones that I would just mention. And then comes verse 22, which is the only verse that Paul didn't write in this letter. Read the verse. Paul didn't write this verse. His secretary did. I, Tertius, who wrote the letter, greet you in the Lord. Um, there is an actual name for the skill of what this man would be doing. is to write small and neat and in straight lines. And they actually had schools to teach it, to be able to be taking down dictation in such a way that it could be read. Today, we would have a form of it in shorthand, for those of you who still know what that is. 
but someone could just take down exactly what's being said as fast as you're saying it. So um, how do they compare it to the um, scribes? They actually call them scribes. So he would be a scribe. It's a school of scribes who would learn to be able to replicate documents quickly and accurately as well as to take dictation. Um, that's what they would do. Then he talks about Gaius, saying he's known for his hospitality. He was a host. And we know of a Gaius in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's mentioned right there. It's got to be the same guy. There's also a Gaius of Derby in Acts 20 and a Gaius, a church leader in Asia Minor in 3 John. Well, I was going to say, that's what I was just saying. Yeah. The letter of 3 John is addressed to him, right? Right. But is it the same Gaius? Most likely it's the Gaius of Corinth because he's from Corinth. Probably staying in his house. And then Erastus, the city treasurer. Well, that's interesting. We have Acts 29, chapter 19, verse 21 where Paul sends Erastus on an errand, but that's probably not this guy. It's probably a different Erastus. Because they have found inscriptions in ancient Corinth in the archaeological digs and whatnot for a fella with the identity as the city treasurer. So we know this guy exist, existed by this name, with that title, and he's a believer. Isn't that cool? That's right. <laughs> Enoch Erastus Weed. That's right. And then, of course, our brother Quartus greets you. And then, can you, let's all read verse 24 together. I think we just did. We just did. Verse 24 is not in the earliest manuscripts and is dropped from almost every modern translation. Because if you were to find it in your Bible, it would read, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. That is the identical sentence you find at the end of verse 20. And so most believe that it was some scribe somewhere, you know, tired at the end of the day and he went back and he just looked at the wrong line and copied it again because it would make no sense for that to happen right before the doxology it's a repeated doxology before the doxology and it's a repeat of the last half of verse 20 so it's taken out of most translations and stuck in them usually in the margins at the bottom of your Bible page so that they acknowledge that it's there but I thought I would play with you a little bit and have you read verse 24. And the silence was very telling. <laughs> and he, I, it's also kind of funny because you, in your notes, it's a page turn. And so all of you are going, wait, what? what what's he doing? Well, I, I don't have that. It, no, and that's the ESV because it's not in the ESV. But it's probably in the margin notes at the bottom of the page, if you've got them. In the very false, the uh, four-point font that you can never read. Can you imagine copying the entire book of Romans, getting to the end, and you make a mistake? And you make a mistake. In ink. In ink, and you have to start over. <laughs> he didn't. That's what he didn't. Yes, all right, there you go. But then you have the doxology. I won't go into it in detail. You can read this for yourself. It's what we have 
looked at before. But these, this doxology, uh, a, a pastor uh, writer named Bob Deffenbaugh said these verses summarize the three major themes of all of Romans. The wisdom of God, the sovereignty of God, and the grace of God are summarized in this doxology, if you look at it carefully. And those three ideas, the wisdom of God, His eternal plan of salvation, the sovereignty of God, that, that He's not only wise, but He's all-powerful, and He's involved in every aspect of our lives. And then thirdly, His mercy and His grace is on display throughout the book of Romans. Isn't that fascinating? So I thought, started thinking through it, and I thought, I will do this quickly, but I tried to summarize the entire book of Romans in a paragraph. But by breaking it down into its major sections. Chapters one through three is the plight of humanity festering in a cesspool of sin. That is chapters one through three. Chapters three through five is the justification that God has provided in an answer to our plight. Sure. Chapters three through five is the justification of God that has provided an answer for our plight because we are in the plight of humanity and in our sin. Chapter 6 through 8 is about sanctification. The now and the not yet of God's work in us. And if you go back and you read that with that idea, you realize what he's trying to explain and express to us in, in and that God is trying to say, I'm at work in you. You're not finished. But right now you're as finished as you can be. But tomorrow you will be even more finished. It's the now and the not yet. That whole movement towards perfection in God's economy. Chapters 9 through 11, to me... That those chapters are about that God keeps His covenant promises. There's almost no other way to look at that because it's all about the Jewish question: Will there be a place for the salvation of the Jews? And if God is true to His covenant promises, the answer is yes, absolutely. There's no other way to read that. It's just what does it look like? Well, we don't know, but we certainly like to talk a lot about it. But. To me, the bottom line is that God keeps His promises to His people. And then 12 to 15, not chapter 16 because we just went through that, but 12 to 15 is our responsibility as God's ambassadors in this world. It's all about how to live this life, this justified by faith, this incredible salvation that we have been given through the grace of God not by our own strength, but only through Him. How do we live it? How do we work it out? Is to renew our minds, to use the gifts that God's given us, to work within the body of Christ for His kingdom and His benefit. And that is the book of Romans. Hmm. 
the doxology? Sure, I can do that. And then we'll pray. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings that have been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, thank you for our time for this year-long journey through the book of Romans. We come to its end and wish it were done. We wish there was a chapter 17. But we know that you are trying to make us press forward and to look at other parts of Scripture as well to see what your word has for us in all situations in an every day and at every time. Lord, thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.